Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. James Altucher at the James Altucher Show, and I'm here with my co-host, Aaron Brabham. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing great, James. Thanks for having me back. Aaron, we just uh, we just saw each other the other day in, my, in warm Miami. Now I'm in cold New York. Uh, I hope you're still enjoying the warmth uh, oh, I de- in Florida. Yeah, I definitely am. I'm in Winter Park, Florida. It's kind of ironic. I, I'm living in Winter Park, but it's actually in Orlando, and it's very, uh, very warm. So, James, we were both down there for the, the inaugural Stansbury Society event, which uh, I thought was wonderful. I'd like to get your quick take on it, and then we'll kind of roll into some of the challenges you had right before you had to give your presentation. But what were your thoughts on it? Well, I'll tell you, going down there, I was worried everyone was going to be really like, you know, super conservative. The end of the world is coming. Um, Scare, scare, fear, fear. And I was wondering, what am I going to say to an audience like that? But everybody wants the same thing, which is, okay, we know a little bit about what's going on in the world, but the world is very hard to predict. So what I really want to know is, how can I just survive, be happy, feed my family and, you know, keep on fighting the good fight every day. And I found that's what people were hungry for. So I get there and I got, the first thing that happened was I got totally scared to death because I saw on the schedule, there was a a mystery guest coming right before me. And then I found out the night before that the mystery guest was Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks guy. Uh, You know, there was the whole movie about WikiLeaks and about Julian and he's a very smart guy. And, uh, uh, you know, the first thing I thought was, what is he going to actually be here? Isn't he under like arrest somewhere? So it turns out he was being Skyped in from the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he's not necessarily under house arrest, but he, he can't leave there. So I don't know what kind of life that is. But anyway, here he was Skyping into the into the conference. And I was scared to death because. I was speaking immediately after him. Like, there would be no break at all. Like, his Skype would go down while I would be walking on the stage. And I figured the only thing people in the audience would be thinking was, oh, my God, I just saw Julian Assange. I can't wait to tell my wife, husband, boyfriend, kids, whatever about it. And they would not be thinking about me at all. And it would ruin my entire talk no matter what I said. So so I was literally up all night. This was almost like solving a puzzle. Like, you know, public speaking is very difficult. In fact, I'm even writing a book about public speaking. And but despite that, every time you speak publicly, it's in front of a new audience with new challenges. And it's a puzzle that has to be solved. So I had to figure out what the hell am I going to do to cut the cord between the audience and what they just saw. Not to make them forget what they just saw because the information was valuable, whatever it is he was going to say, but I had to cut that cord so that they would listen to me. And uh, I was scared to death. I was, you know, and this is related to the topic of this podcast today, I was really anxious. I was feeling a lot of anxiety about it. On that topic, so uh, James, your guest today is Charlie Hone, and he'll come up in a minute, and it's a great interview that you guys conducted, and a lot of it is anxiety. So really quickly, um, I know our audience is in suspense. The listeners are. Tell them how you you kind of broke their thinking and had them focus on you because I thought you gave the best speech I know uh, a lot of other people, including a lot of directors in our company, thought that you wowed the audience. You won them over. You were the perfect transition because we had Porter introduce himself first. He was also the moderator. So you have the owner of the company. Then you go into Julian Assange, who's this world-renowned you know, guy that's in hiding in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. 
And then you have Mr. Upbeat James Altucher coming on stage. How did you do it? Tell our listeners. Well, okay, so there's sort of a before, a before, during, and after. The before is essentially the night before, how am I going to switch my preparation? And the way I view public speaking now, and this is not always how I viewed it, is that my entire life has been preparation. I don't need to prepare, um, and, and this is not true for everyone, but for me, I don't like to prepare slides or a PowerPoint. I figure my entire life, every single moment has been preparation. And when I'm on the stage, I'm there that moment using all my lifetime preparation. But very specifically, like I said before, I had to solve a problem first. And the problem was cutting the cord, cutting that kind of visceral excitement uh, between the audience and Julian so that they would listen to me. So, so... Well, actually, first thing I did was I watched the movie WikiLeaks or, you know, the movie that was about Julian Assange. And I kind of figured several things. One is he was going to be very smart, but he was going to speak in a monotone. He was going to speak in an accent and he was going to have all the problems that are associated with Skype, whereas I was going to be there live. So I can use all of those things to my advantage. And when you say advantage, it's not like I was competing against him, but a little bit. I felt like I was. I'm a competitive speaker and I wanted to, to I wanted people to like me and I wanted to be entertaining to the audience. So so I figured I, I had some advantages. So what I did then was I watched an enormous amount of stand up comedy. And I watched Louis C. K, Daniel Tosh, Anthony Jeselnik, I watched music videos from the Lonely Island. I probably watched uh you know, Jimmy Fallon had his first week on The Tonight Show, so I watched uh, Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake doing their video history of rap. So I saw how these people went all out in their experience to entertain. So, you know, the great thing about stand-up comedians is they every movement they do is part of the act. It's not just the jokes. They're not just telling jokes. They're doing it with their inflections. They're doing it with their movements. They're doing it with different accents and impressions. And they go all out. They cannot hold back in their entertainment of the audience, even while they're trying to educate. So it's edutainment. So I did that as kind of initial preparation. And then I had to figure out, well, how am I going to tie what Julian said into what I'm going to say. So I took my phone and as I was walking on the stage, I'm talking to Claudia, my wife, and I'm, I'm basically saying, I'm basically addressing what the audience is thinking. So I'm saying to Claudia, yeah, it really was Julian Assange. No, he wasn't there. But look, listen, I'm on the stage right now. I have to go. So and then I held hold up the phone to the audience and I say, I'm sick of this thing. Not only is Big Brother listening to me like the government, but guys like Julian Assange are listening to the government, you know, listening to me talking to my wife. So I, I have no I want a kind I want a kinder and gentler Big Brother. So I took the phone and I said, I have one solution. I'm never going to use a phone again. I'm sick of these things. And so I took my Samsung Galaxy Note 2 and turned around and I smashed it as hard as I could against the floor. It smashed into a million pieces. And uh, I had already pre prearranged with the stage guy that while I was going on to my next t idea that I was going to talk about, he would come through with like this stage size broom and sweep away all the pieces. Because that I, I wanted that to symbolize, okay, that's the end of the last talk. That's the end of the Julian talk. And now my talk begins. So... I walk up to the podium and I, I got into my next part of the talk, which would which would then shock the audience a little bit more, but in a different way. So I said, listen, I got some um, somewhat surprising family news last night and it forced me to change my entire talk, which was actually true. Aaron, I got this call from my cousin and my cousin was on this podcast a few weeks ago, A.J. Jacobs. And I, I got this call and he explained to me how um, my aunt's fifth grade aunt's father's wife's seventh great grandnephew was barack obama and uh so that of course again further cuts the cord but doesn't make it about julian it makes it about me and uh, uh again i'm continuing this transition from julian's talk into my talk and then i made some jokes based on that and then i was able to fully get into my talk and uh you know 
uh, along the way, while people were laughing, I was able to establish my credentials, like why I'm here talking. But at the same time, I wanted everybody laughing. People don't remember exactly what you say, but they remember how you make them feel. So and also the laughter itself coming from the audience helped me to reduce my anxiety. It gave me energy. It helped. You know, when you when you make people laugh it, it and when you entertain people and when you educate people, it gives you energy. So it's not just food that gives you energy. It's kind of the, the energy of others gives you energy as well. And that's how, for me, I reduced anxiety. And it, it was very powerful technique. It worked very well. I got a lot of great feedback, like you just said. I got a lot of great feedback on the talk. And it shows that you can't blindly do the same talk over and over. You have to view talks and experiences and business meetings as puzzles that you have to solve, problems that you have to work through. And every problem has a unique solution. And if you view situations in life that way, and if you come up with a unique solution for every unique situation, you'll you'll end up being very successful because those tiny successes com compound into huge success. And it, and it worked for this talk and it, it worked. I try to make it work for everything I do. Nice breakdown, James. We'll give a brief introduction to Charlie Hone and then uh, we'll jump. We'll let our listeners jump into the interview. Sure. Charlie is a, a great, incredibly successful guy. He helped, uh, you know, we all know Tim Ferriss wrote The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Body, The 4-Hour Chef. Uh, Charlie helped him launch these books. He helped him market the books. He really planned, you know, Tim is a, a fantastic marketer. He doesn't view a book as just uh, writing a book and then handing it off to the publisher. He views a book launch as an entire event, an experience. And Charlie was the guy, Charlie Hone was the guy organizing these experiences. And he threw his all into it. And during that process, you know, like we often encounter in life, he got burnt out. He got so burnt out and anxious, it basically caused him to quit his job and practically go into recovery mode. Like how, how was he gonna recover from this anxiety? He was feeling so much anxiety, he couldn't get out of bed. And the solution he came up with, which he wrote about in his book that he describes in the podcast, the solution he came up with was, I thought, incredibly unique and, and a solution I'm going to try in, in my life. And um, I'll, I'll let Charlie speak for himself, but Again, I encourage uh, people to, to try this technique in their lives and just see how it works. And if it works well, you know, write in at james at stansberryradio.com and tell me how it works in your life. And I, I'd really like to hear. So with that, on, on to Charlie Hone. I am here with my good friend, Charlie Hone. Who, and Charlie, you are an expert on so many things. There's so many topics we can talk about, but how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, and uh, I'm just thrilled to be on. Thanks for having me as a guest, James. So, so Charlie, I'm going to describe your background a little bit. You, you recently self-published a book, Play It Away, A Workaholic's Cure for Anxiety. Uh, you've also been a, you're a marketing expert. You did marketing for best-selling authors like Tim Ferriss, Ramit Sethi, and, and others, and I'm going to talk about that a bit as well. And um, But what I really want to talk about first is your cure for anxiety and the topic of your book. So what was your experience initially? Like, why were you anxious? You were such, you were such a successful young guy, and it sounded like you were making money. Like, I, re I read through your bio. You worked with all these, like, famous people doing all this fun stuff, and we'll, we'll talk about those things later. But what was making you anxious or maybe nothing was making you anxious, but you were anxious anyway. Right. Um, so, yeah, the, the main thing that really kind of, I, that I was missing for so long that was ultimately driving me to do all these unhealthy things that was making me anxious was I was taking my work so seriously. I originally got into those positions because um, during the recession, that was in 2008, that was when I graduated from college and no one was hiring and I was applying to all these companies that were ignoring me that I didn't even want to work for. So I decided I'm going to do stuff that I just actually want to do that's fun. And I found myself working with cool people like Ramit and Tim and, um, but somewhere along the way, uh, 
the money became a huge issue and me wanting to be the best and to dominate and being so focused on the future and can, can you really can you describe of, a little bit uh, of what that means like a you said money became an issue and you uh, thinking about the future like you were very young what were you thinking about the future and how was money getting in the way of this Sure. So I'm, I'm from Colorado, and I moved out to Silicon Valley, basically, and I was surrounded by all these really successful, uh, wealthy entrepreneurs, and I wanted to be like them. And so I, when, when I got burned out and actually had to quit and take some time off, I was so worried because I felt like I'd blown it and I was I was losing money and so I became I, I was obsessed with okay I have to become a millionaire I have to become a successful CEO now um, and, and how so old were you I was then? Just, uh, I was 25 at the time I'm 27 now you know I, I and, find yeah. a, with a lot with people who are in their 20s uh, that they need to have it all planned out and and I, I find this to be more true now even than it was let's say 10 20 years ago they, they need to kind of have it figured out in advance or they start to feel like a failure do you find that among your peers yeah totally but why do you think that is you know, we've been I, I think because the world has become more uncertain you know we you know mm -hmm. even the status of our trust in the U.S. dollar or our trust in the U.S. banks or our trust in the U.S. government, regardless of political affiliation, it almost doesn't matter. It's very confused. We live in a very confusing world that has, you know, we're, we're in the middle of all these wars and, and that has never stopped. It's been going on for 10 years. And I think now the generation that's been graduating over the past five, six, 10 years, I think that uncertainty has really gotten to them. Yeah. Totally. And the, and the fact that we're kind of pressured all throughout um, our young adult lives to kind of get things figured out and uh, pigeonhole ourselves into some sort of career that um, we're, we're not told is unlikely is unlikely to work out over the long run. You know, you, you go through these mini stretches of, of trying things that you don't really like. Um, you, you make a really good point. Like, I've... You know, I can tell you from my own experience, I've probably switched careers, careers, not just jobs, but careers seven or eight times since I was your age. Forget about from yeah. 22 to 27, but since I was 27, I've switched careers and sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a very bad way. And every single time, though, it was anxiety inducing and coming up with methods of dealing with that anxiety, you know, up until the current day is, you know, and I'm 46 years old right now, dealing with anxiety on a daily basis is, is a daily practice. Like, it's not something yeah. that disappears. It's, it's an illness that we're stuck with almost as a society. Right. And you have the four cornerstones that you use and in, incorporate in your daily practice, and that works for you, the mental, spiritual, um, physical, yeah. and... What physical and emotional, yeah. So I, yeah. I kind of feel that always if you could check the box on physical health, uh, emotional health, which just means be around people who you love and respect, uh, mental health, which means keeping your idea muscle um, exercised, and what I call spiritual health. Spiritual is almost a bad word, but it's really more just feeling grateful for what you have in your life. Um, for me, that's I make sure every day I check the box on those, and my life changes every six months in incredible ways because of that. But, uh, you know, having read your your story and how your method of curing anxiety, I see it as very similar, actually, and I really love some of your examples. So maybe talk about when you hit bottom with this and how what, what your actual cure for anxiety was and what you tried along the way before you found yeah. that cure. Totally, so when I hit bottom, boy, it was after I'd, I'd quit two really great jobs or prestigious jobs that everyone congratulated me on. Um, I quit them basically within a matter of months. So the first was I quit um, working with Tim Ferriss, who I'd worked with for three years as his director of special projects, his full-time assistant. And um, the reason I quit 
was I I was just I was really burned out. I couldn't detach myself from work uh, because I wanted to be indispensable, and so I was working around the clock and drinking caffeine all day. And um, and we were working on the Four Hour Chef at the time, and the um, and, and, and excellent book by the way. Down. I highly recommend it. Oh yeah, yeah, totally amazing. It's a monster, um, and. I, he offered to double my salary to help him get through it. So I was stoked to do that. And I felt really grateful to be in that position, but I was also exhausted. And, um, and a few things happened all at once. Uh, the deadline got pushed back three months. Um, and then a family member of mine died. And then a close friend attempted suicide. Uh, and that all happened within 48 hours, and that kind of just pushed me over the emotional brink, and I just told him I had to quit. And um, so I took a few months off, and I felt really anxious because I was going through the motions of work without actually doing anything. So I was staying up real late, checking email, and trying to feel productive. Well, uh, why do you think and, you were going through the motions? Was it almost like you were addicted to the adrenaline? It was a part of that. It was, I think it was mostly because of the guilt that I felt for not working. Um, I, I felt really guilty because everybody had said, you know, this is such, congratulations, like you're, you're doing it, you're living the dream sort of thing. And, um, and I felt like I'd burned a bridge and I was really scared, um, which was not true, but I was really scared that Tim hated me for kind of leaving him in the middle of this enormous project. Um, and I felt really insecure about it and I, I was really anxious after I quit, and I just kept it all inside, and I, I kept on the surface, you know, that everything was fine, and I was going to get the future all figured out, and, you know, because everyone asked me, what are you going to do next? And um, I had no idea, and I was really uh, pretty scared, um, but I, I ended up working with a couple friends of mine at an app startup, and uh, we did well, um, you know, within a few months. We'd, we'd made a, um, a couple million in revenue, and um, but I just realized that at the end of those few months that I just didn't care about apps, and I, I'd only done it because I looked at it as, hey, this is the most exciting industry in the history of capitalism. Like Facebook had just bought Instagram for a billion dollars, and uh, Zynga had bought draw something for two hundred fifty million. So I was I was really drawn to. Um, that prestige element of, hey, I'm going to be a founder of this profitable company. Um, and, and I realized I was ultimately in it for the wrong reason, and I quit. And that's when I got to my really lowest point and started having panic attacks. And um, it was the worst. That period of my life, which lasted about a year, was the worst I think I've felt uh, ever. It just felt like I was dead um, inside. And I remember having a talk with my girlfriend at the time and telling her that and being envious because she could cry. You know, she, and when I told her that, she started crying. And I was just like, I can't even feel, you know, I can't, I can't, my emotions aren't in check. I just feel awful all the time. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. And, you know, I, I just want to address this because, you know, you, you are young and some of our, our audience, including myself, is, uh, uh, you know, we're decades older. But this is not going to be the only time, you know, you'll hit bottom, obviously. Right. And the good news is, is that at some point in one's life, hopefully uh, you come up with methods of, of dealing with that feelings of, uh, you know, either anxiety or bottom or feeling stuck or feeling like you can't get your emotions out. And it sounds like you came up with, and you wrote a book about it, a very clever way of uh, dealing with this anxiety. Right. Yeah. So the, my, the realization I had um, you know, I did, my anxiety at that time was debilitating. Like it was ruining my relationships. It was preventing me from working. Um, but what I realized uh, one night, just by happenstance, I was over at our friend Tucker Max's apartment, and I was looking at his bookshelf, 
and I came across a book called Play uh, by a guy named Stuart Brown. And I sat down and read it, and it was this tidal wave of a realization that I was preventing myself, unconsciously preventing myself from having guilt-free fun and I, preventing myself from playing and having fun with people and approaching life as a series of opportunities to have fun. And it was just that simple shift in how I viewed the world that changed everything. It changed it from being a prison to becoming a playground. Well, and I like you. You told one story about how uh, you wanted to meet your friend uh, or, or somebody contacted you, David, he wanted to meet you, and you said, sure, let's go play catch, which I thought mm-hmm. is great, because usually people say, oh, yeah, let's meet at Starbucks and have a coffee. Right. And yeah. the idea of, like, saying, hey, let's play catch, it brings back these feelings and emotions from when really life was just carefree and fun. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it took, it was so nice because it took the seriousness out of that meeting and I hate those meetings normally I'm, I'm, because both sides have a facade up of like hey I really appreciate what you're doing um, I'm trying to impress you and get something out of you and it's just this weird dynamic that we all kind of agree to and um, I just I get sick of it and so we, do, we did this game of catch and it was just really nice like it, it, it loosened the tension and we didn't have to talk the whole time or drink stimulants to enjoy each other's company. That's great. So so what are other examples of, of play? Like what are some other kind of play meetings that you've had uh, during the course of, of reducing your anxiety levels? Yeah. Um, well, a friend of mine one night was super anxious because she'd missed a deadline and she was planning on staying up all night. And we kidnapped her to go play mini golf. And uh, and that was really fun. And it Wait, was she screaming, her, though? Like, I got to finish this. I have a deadline. Yeah, she. I mean, she was freaking out. And uh, she, <laughs> yeah, she was really freaking out. And um, we just noticed, we, we, were, we took a look at her work. She was designing a website. And she had so many hours ahead of her. And it just wasn't coming together. And uh, this is when I started noticing um, that playing was actually a, it helps you be more productive because it turns your brain off and allows you to relax. And then when you return to the work, you actually can do it better and faster. And she was able to, to go back to the site and finish it in a couple hours. Well, and and Um, I wouldn't say it turns off your brain. I would say it activates other parts of your brain so that when you're finally back at your desk and working, your brain is on fire, like the neurons are firing all over the place. Yeah. I guess I was referring to a specific type of play, the the kind where you're running around, something like Ultimate Frisbee or something, because then it's it's kind of impossible for your brain to be having these deep thoughts. Um, So that kind of play to me is, it's very similar to sleep in that your your mind gets to relax and not take in tons of information that it has to process. It can just you you can just be. It's interesting because I used to uh, day trade for a living, and then I ran a, a hedge fund, and often you know that's an incredibly stressful business, particularly the day trading. I would. I can't even, that's the topic of another podcast probably, but that's extraordinarily stressful. And what I would often do is uh, play chess to kind of, during the market, while the market was open, to kind of relieve the stress a little bit. Mm -hmm. And now you're a chess master. Yeah, yeah, so I, I, it was, you know, which was interesting. So I've played chess for many years. I've played in many chess tournaments. I'm a high-ranking player, but... um, uh, so sometimes it was stressful if uh, suddenly if I didn't maintain, let's say, my ranking on whatever site I was on. But usually it was uh, it was a good way to at least turn my brain in another direction. Another thing I do often is I'll go into the city and uh, play backgammon with friends in a restaurant, and that will keep me, you know, completely off what is happening in in the market or or in other parts of my life. I found that to be very uh, anxiety reducing for myself. 
Right. Not as physical, though. So I, I should try more of, like, the playing catch or running around uh, type of activity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you do yoga? Yeah, I do or yoga, and I've... Um, my my wife's a yoga instructor, and we've actually been to right. India several times uh, doing yoga, and I find that to be extremely uh, stress-reducing because when you're twisting your body in these awkward shapes, you're definitely not thinking about what you have to do next on the job. Like, that's a, it's impossible. Do, yeah. do you do yoga? Um, I, I, I've done it. Um, I, I mean, you, you know that since your wife's, um, a yoga instructor, uh, but yoga means uh, with God, right? It, you know, there's a lot of different meanings, but that could be like that could be one of them, sort of joined with a, a higher entity, or you know, there's, yeah. it could also mean separate, so separate from the world we live in. Right. Yeah. So I I did uh, kriya yoga for a long time, which is just basically a certain style of meditation that you're focusing on the on different areas in the spine. But um, yeah, I've also done the traditional types of yoga. Um, the the physical types of play that the outdoor sports where you're running around and really getting your heart rate up and having to breathe a lot, I've found to be the most anxiety reducing because. You're you're not only getting fun exercise, you're also being around people and and bonding with them over something where there's really not that much pressure. And I you know, I thought back when this was another realization when I when I had that when I read that book play was my best friends throughout my life have been people I played sports with. And I'm still friends with them, and I miss having that connection. And it's unfortunate when you get older, how serious sports become and how serious play becomes. Um, yeah, so that's I, a really good I'm, point. Like when you're a kid, you could just you and a friend could just take a rock, put it in the street, and try to kick it past each other, and that's a whole game. And you're going to yeah. get dirty and money and push each other and laugh and. Eventually, the rock is going to end up on one side or the other, and that's a whole yeah. game. Oh, yeah. I uh, We used to play this every single day uh, after middle school. I think from grade four to six, we had this uh, this ditch on the way to school um, or between school and our houses that we would walk to, and one, one team would stand on one side of the dish, the other team would stand on the other, and we would just throw rocks at each other and see if we could hit each other. That was yeah, and like, was, can yeah. you imagine, like, walking down, like, Park Avenue in New York City where everybody, 100% of the people, men and women, are in suits and seeing anybody, like, throw rocks at each other? I know. It's, you can't even imagine it. Um, there's... There's something in San Francisco that I loved. Um, it was on, I think it's on Valentine's Day, actually. Uh, it's this massive pillow fight that they do down at the Embarcadero. And literally like a thousand people show up and just have pillows and just fight each other. It's really fun. Oh, yeah, that happened on uh, on Wall Street. That happens once a year as well, actually. Uh, right. I, I used to live on Wall Street, and, and I remembered when it was when it was happening where there was just, like, shredded pillows all over the street one, one Saturday or Sunday. <laughs> but, you know, it's, yeah. it, it's interesting, though, because, like, you look at a guy like Steve Jobs. He would even do this technique. We're not exactly running around, obviously, because he was sick for, for many years, but... You know, some of his most important meetings were during walks outside of the office. Yeah. Like sometimes you have to get out of your standard routine in order to actually make a real connection with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. I love walking meetings, by the way. It's, it's so nice and it's so much more stimulating. Why wouldn't you do that? Right. And yet many people don't like I, I advise many of the listeners to really pay attention to this and you know, what I often do is I'll take out a notebook and I'll write down my routine line by line and just see if it's become too standardized. Like, am I, am I too set in a routine? And I try to figure out at least one thing I can scratch out and one thing I can put in that is fun, whether it's, you know, playing ping pong or swimming or going, you know, going kayaking in the middle of the day. I live right by a river. So often there's things you can do 
it's not going to take away from your work. It's going to make life better, which is ultimately yeah. the key at the end of all of this. And uh, it'll actually probably improve your work as well. Totally. And you brought up a great point, actually, because for me, it's so easy to get caught in the trap of just working all the time. And I found that when I actually scheduled a time in the day to play, to do something guilt-free and for fun, I actually committed to doing it and, and just having it in my schedule, even though it goes against the spontaneous nature of play, just actually cutting out a chunk of time every day and saying, this is my time to just have fun. Because otherwise, it's just not going to happen. You have to make it a priority. Yeah, I mean, there, there's two points there. You're right. It's not going to happen if you don't make it a priority. The other point that's very important and a little more uh, subtle is that working 20 hours a day or working even like 12 hours a day or eight hours a day is often not very productive. Like there's, there comes right. a point where there's only marginal utility to working more. And so I've interviewed and looked at a lot of different masters of their industry and said, ask them, how many hours a day do you work? And the common answer, actually, believe it or not, is about three or four hours a day. And, and yep. after that, they don't, it's much better for these people who are masters in their industry. I'm talking like, let's say the world chess champion, you know, or the world champion at tennis or, uh, you know, some business leader. Working more than four or five hours a day sort of shows that you're not really being efficient with your time. Right. And that's the main thing is that those people who work three or four hours a day, during those hours, they're focused. They, they don't get distracted. And I think the majority of us, because we're on computers for a lot of our work, it's really easy for us to get sidetracked and to constantly just escape work because it's uh, half a second away. Um, but yeah, I found, I don't know, I don't know what you do, James, but what I found that works best for me when I really need to get work done is to set an alarm, uh, for, or set a timer for one hour and just do the one thing I need to do and nothing else. And then when the timer goes off, I can take a break and everything. But just making that the focus for a certain period of time is what really helps for me. Yeah, I usually I usually don't do it by time, but by activity. And I guess I roughly know how much uh, time and activity will take. So, for instance, writing right. an, an article uh, or preparing for this uh, podcast, I took about an hour. And right. uh, but at that time, I read you know many of the things that you've written. I, I understood where you were coming from, and uh, you know then I move on. Then then I take my break. So my break uh, today involved you know, going to this new uh, juicing establishment and drinking healthy, talking to my wife, uh, hanging out a little bit, and then coming back and doing this this podcast. And then later on, I'm sure I'll, I'll play chess because I do that every single day. <laughs> nice. But, Very you cool. know, so, so what did you do after you discovered this? Like, how did you get back into the swing of things? What, 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 are, you, what are you working on now? Like, I know you wrote a book, so Play It Away, A Workaholic's Cure for Anxiety, uh, by Charlie Hone, H-O-E-H-N. I encourage people to find it on Amazon and, and to buy the book to really see everything that you're talking about here. But, but what, are you, what are you working on now? Thanks. Um, I mean, right now it's, it's kind of in book marketing mode because I've, I've been down this path with Tim and all those other guys. I know that I want to get the book in as many people's hands as I can. Uh, so really my only focus over the last month or so and probably the next month is just going to be on getting this book up and running. Um, I'm also thinking about, uh, I haven't quite decided, I'm thinking about doing a support group for like less than 100 people uh, who really need to be held accountable um, who, or who want to be held accountable and get through the first month of, uh, of recommendations in the book because it's divided up as like a four-week plan. Um, so just just doing a support group for them. And that's pretty much it. Uh, apart from that, um, you know, during the week, I, um, 
I, I do improv once a week. I've been doing that for the last six months. I do that for three hours every week. Um, and just try and make an effort to, um, to go have some fun with friends, um, go to the driving range or something, and, uh, and to do exercise that is fun for me that I enjoy and, and to uh, do stuff that's fun. Well, let's, I want to, I want to ask you about marketing your book because, you know, I think it was Seth Godin who said, uh, over the past year, probably 15 million ISBNs were registered. And my guess is most of that is self-published books. And this is an industry, like I know the guys at Amazon very well. This is an industry that has, it's like the Gutenberg press all over again. It's, it's an innovation. No longer are there gatekeepers to publishing a book and many best-selling books now have been self-published. We're going to have uh, in a few weeks. We're going to have Hugh Howie on the show, and he wrote the yeah. science fiction Wool. bestseller Wool. Uh, E.L. James self-published initially Fifty Shades of Grey. So a lot of these books that are that then become bestsellers uh, started off as self-published. What do you and, and and again you're coming at it from the point of view you are a professional book marketer. So you did this for Tim Ferriss, for Ramit Sethi, for Tucker. Uh, what would you say are kind of like the top five guidelines to think of in book marketing? Forgetting, um, of course, it's got to be a good book to begin with. What do you do after that? Um, I think it's important to validate whether people are willing to pay money. And there are a number of ways you can do this. But I think it, I think it actually is important to validate that people are willing to pay money for the book that you're making. You know, you obviously, like you said, you want to write a book that's good, um, but I don't think that's enough necessarily. So the way that I validated this book was um, I wrote a blog post called How I Cured My Anxiety. And um, I just wanted to see what people's reaction was. And I, I wasn't planning on making this into a book at the time, and uh, that post blew up. Uh, it did really well. And I think for the last year, it's been in the top two results for uh, cure anxiety. And, um, and I put a sign-up form at the end of that post and said, would you be interested in a book about this topic? And 100 people signed up in the first couple of days. And so I thought maybe I have something there. Um, another way that aspiring authors could validate uh, or self-published writers could validate whether their book is going to work is study the top charts on Amazon for a couple of weeks and just see what people are actually buying. Um, you know, take notice of the, of the trending, um, you know, imagery and uh, the title descriptions and uh, the, the stuff that keeps coming up in your respective category that people actually demand. Because you can actually write the book that you want, but if it's not framed in a way that your target readers are familiar with and are already buying, then it's going to be a much harder sell. So I think that's, that's the very first step is figuring out what people actually want and are willing to pay for because the rest going forward um, is, is much easier. Well, it's amazing um, after think, Fifty Shades of Grey uh, sort of opened the door on kind of, re- let's call it respectable uh, female pornography, that yeah. uh, there were so many copycats that actually became major bestsellers, like in the top 10 on Amazon, which, which sells, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies. Right, exactly. And it's, it's really hard to be the leader of the pack, the Fifty Shades of Grey that opens the door for everyone else. I think it's much easier to draft behind them um, than it is to try and innovate because, you know, the Fifty Shades of Grey might have never taken off, you know, if it came at the wrong time. Well, what about, so, what about this as a business idea? So you take every bestseller in the top 100 every week and you write kind of the Cliff's Notes to that bestseller. So like a three-page book, which you then, like the Cliff's Notes, you know, or the Charlie's great. Notes to uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, Charlie's Notes to, I don't know, Cain uh, and Abel, whatever the latest bestsellers, or, you know, Cliff's, Charlie's Notes to The Something by, jo- by John Grisham. You know, what, you know, yeah, what about an idea, idea. Which, which kind of plays off of all these bestsellers and piggybacks on their search? I think that's a great idea, and you know, somebody who kind of does a version of that is uh, 
brain picking. She just gives her summaries of the books that she likes, and she she writes about interesting books. And yeah, so that's brainpickings.org, uh, Maria yeah. Popova. Uh, I think she's a genius. Her yeah. tastes are very highbrow. Like, so she's not going to um, do this on necessarily Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, but she'll do it on, on, you know, Henry Miller, you know, Tropic of Cancer or Charles Bukowski or whatever. But uh, again, what about... Uh, uh, just c- because Amazon is this great platform, you can upload to any. You can yeah. upload anything you write and sell it the next day. Um, just take every single book and outsource to India. Have someone write a three-page summary. Then you make a cover and throw, throw it up there. Then anyone searching, you know, the next Fifty Shades of Grey is going to come up with your little book as well. Yeah, I think that's a really smart idea, and that's that's a really easy way to uh, in. And you can do the same cover for each of them. You can charge a buck or two bucks for this quick summary, and then they can all cross-promote each other, and all of a sudden you have a business on your hands. Yeah, because um, like, you, 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 like you can use a site like Fiverr to actually write like a three-page summary for, for te- have someone write th- three-page summaries for 100 bucks for you know $10 a book, and you're going to you know definitely sell, you know, make more than, you know, Ten dollars a book oh, in its yeah. lifespan, so it'll it'll pay for itself. It's a it sounds. I'm just riffing here, but it sounds like a fun little business. Yeah, yeah it is. I like it a lot, especially if you're an avid reader. That just makes sense to do. Yeah, um, or if you, or if you want to, you know, your your audience is the people who keep hearing about these books, but like I don't want to read Fifty Shades of Grey, for instance, but I wouldn't mind knowing what it's about, so I can talk about it like with yeah, a hit or both, a party or whatever. Both. Yeah. Totally. Um, so I was just riffing off of your idea of, you know, kind of tracking what, what plays and what doesn't. You know, I use a similar yeah. technique in that before I even post a blog, I post a, a, an article on a Facebook status update. And then I could directly see uh, how, many, how much engagement it gets uh, just uh-huh. among my circle of friends. And then if it gets a certain level of engagement, I'll do it on Quora.com and I'll see how many people upvote it, downvote it, uh, ask, have comments on it. Then when I feel the engagement's good enough and I'm rewriting the whole time, I post it on my blog. Then yeah. if the engagement there is good, I'll include it as a chapter in my book. I'll rewrite again and I'll include it as a chapter in a book. Yeah, I've, I, I loved your stuff and I've read a bunch of your stuff on Quora actually too. Um, I read your blog of course, but... Um, I, I remember coming across like all these people who um, who didn't succeed. Somebody asked what they should do if they feel like they're lost in their 20s, and you said all these people succeeded way late in their life. You know, from Rodney Dangerfield to the guy who invented top ramen noodles, and you related to how that you know affected your life. And I, yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah, and that that became, um, or a version of that became a chapter in my latest book, Choose Yourself, because it was such a popular uh, post. You know, I expanded it and added more, and and it it became a chapter in my last book. So yeah, so it's interesting, and that's also a way I'm I'm testing material for for my next book. So that I agree with you. It is very important. You know, it's too easy to smoke your own crack. And so it's very important to uh, make sure other people want to smoke it as well. And your way of validating yes. is, is very powerful. So, yes. so that's good. So I, I wanted to share one more thing um, because it's similar to what we're talking about. Something I, uh, I did for my book and our friend Sean Platt has done for his books is uh, he had beta, we, we had beta readers. So I had, um, I, I, I did a post where I said, hey, I'm working on this book. It's about this topic. And I'm looking for people who um, have gone through similar stuff and who have backgrounds in maybe writing or journalism or, you know, legit people uh, who could help with the editing of my book. And I said, if you're interested, just just apply here. And um, I, I had about 100 people apply. I picked, I think, around 30 of them. And I gave them uh, an early version of, of my book, Play It Away. And they edited it for free. They gave their thoughts, and I said, just be ruthless. Like, destroy me if, if there's something stupid in there or something you disagree with. 
and they made the book. I'm not joking. Like, if I'd gone the traditional route with a traditional publisher, I would have had one editor, and it's just one person who's a professional who's juggling all these other books who doesn't really care about my book giving me their thoughts, and all they're trying to do really is cover their tracks and prevent me from getting in legal trouble and make them look professional. Whereas these were my actual target readers giving me their feedback on the book and adding in their thoughts. And not only did they make the book 10 times better than if I'd gone through a professional editor, uh, they actually, I, I baked them into the book. And so now they want to see the book succeed. The, the day I came out with the book, I just asked them, hey, will you guys put up an Amazon review? Here's a free digital copy of the book. Thank you so much. And I put them all in the acknowledgement. And so I think that's such an easy way to not only get readers invested in your book early on and get a bunch of people invested in your success, but also to make your book great for the people who want to read that. Because that, that move surely prevented a lot of one- and two-star reviews on Amazon. Well, also, it sounds like an excellent marketing technique because they have a vested interest now. It, they've made, they've made, they have commitment bias. They've made a commitment mm -hmm. of their time into yeah. your book, and and they've put some effort from their lives into your book. So they have a vested interest in telling their friends about your book, having a positive review of your book, and so on. So I think it's a very good marketing technique too. It yeah. sort of goes along yeah. the lines of Kevin Kelly's, you know, if you have 1,000 true fans, you're, you can make a living. And that's your way between the blog post and, you know, getting these beta readers. That's your way of building your 1,000 your true fans for, for a product. Right. And I think there could actually be a business in this. Um, and I was talking to Niels Parker, who was your editor, and he's a, a friend of ours, um, about a, a business where authors come to, to this company and they say, hey, I need somebody to edit my book. And the company puts them in touch with their thousand true fans, but, you know, a small pool of them, so say 50 people. And in exchange for those people giving their feedback on the book and making it better, um, at the end of it, they throw a party or some unique experience where they get to interact with the author on a personal basis that's priceless. This is a great. So this is, this is the second business idea to, to come out of this call. And, and I want to add, this is an industry that is exploding. We're only in yeah. inning one of the self-publishing industry. So, so oh, yeah. we've, these businesses, somebody will do them and they will work. Like, and, and, you know, yeah. I think about the marketing for the four hour body, which I guess you were involved with. Tim did, an, uh, you know, the whole idea of a party and involving the reader in interacting with Tim and interacting with the book was very powerful, actually. Yeah, completely. What, really what would you say? And, and this is slightly shifting topics. But what would you say is the, the number one or two things you, you learned from working with with Tim Ferriss during his? You know, he's a very hard worker. Despite the four hour work week, I know the guy works many hours a week. You know, the, the biggest takeaway I had, um, which has trickled into my work, is just how much Tim cares about putting out an amazing product. Uh, his standards are crazy compared to the average person. Like, they're so high. And what's an example of, like, what the average person might do versus what Tim does? Um, okay, so let's see. Um, editing the four-hour body, we did over a dozen times. That's a 700-page book, uh, line by line. We would catch over a hundred edits, he would just rewrite over and over and over. And um, another thing he does, so this is a better example, I guess, is uh, his blog. His blog is hugely successful and he has this really um, rabid audience because he's, his standards for everything that he does on there are exceptionally high compared to um, a decent blog or even a, a really good blog. Uh, his guest posts, he's, he's received guest posts from super prolific, high-profile names and turned them down immediately because he just says, you know, my reader isn't going to care about this. It's too self-promotional. Or he'll remove 
like um, anything affiliate related, uh, like an email landing page or something, because he doesn't want his readers to feel like they're being scammed. He really respects the reader and wants to deliver an amazing experience, and he really cares about that. And so that trickled into, into my book because I wanted to give people like the do it now and uh, the resources and everything to make it as painless as possible for the reader. That's great. So it sounds like by by forsaking, let's say, short-term gain, so in the case of the editing, he probably didn't have to edit as much, but there would have been errors that would have slipped through the cracks. Or, or with the blog, you know, by making sure it's totally the highest standards possible, uh, uh, you know, and avoiding any kind of small amounts of money from affiliate fees or whatever, uh, he has the longest term benefit, which is to consistently, you know, be known for uh, being branded with high quality content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what about I, uh, I Ramit Sethi, who I, I know um, you did uh, some of the marketing for his book, I believe, as well. And yeah, he, uh, he had a yeah. New York Times bestseller. Right. Uh, Ramit and I worked together in, uh, we started working together, I think, in 2008, 2009. um, Oh, oh, and just to be clear, his book is called I Will Teach You To Be Rich. It's also a great book. Eventually, we're going to have Ramit on the podcast. I'm a big fan of Ramit's as well. So, so, and he's a very smart guy when writing about financial uh, information. Yeah, Yeah, Ramit is great. Um, I think, boy been a while since we worked together. I mean, the most recent lesson that we learned together, and this, go, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about validating an idea, Ramit and I made a, an iPhone app together uh, called Negotiated, which just, you know how when you call a credit card company or a cable company uh, and they have a script to basically keep you as a customer and to prevent you from, um, you know, canceling, we give you the counter script to get money back from them and to save money. So it was this, it, 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 we came up with the app because he has all these scripts in his book and on his blog, and people kept saying they saved a lot of money with them. Uh, so we packaged them up into an app that people could use while they're calling. Uh, the problem was is, is the packaging was wrong. No one searches for negotiate in the app store. Uh, no one searches for negotiate, period. So there's no demand for that topic. If we said save money through your phone or something, I don't know, if we branded it right and packaged it correctly, it might have done better. It made its money back, but it it just wasn't a big success. So that's the first lesson that comes to mind with him because I learned that semi-recently and uh, and really took it to heart because it was such a big project uh, or it it was a difficult project for me and I wouldn't have wasted so much time if I'd known it wasn't going to do as well. So this was during the period when you were kind of like going all out, uh, workaholic, uh, stress, doing all these different activities. Uh, Yeah, we started doing that app um, a while back, but finished it while I was kind of just frantically figuring out what I was going to do next. And yeah, during the workaholic stage. Once again, Charlie Hone, I highly recommend everybody buy your book, play it away, A Workaholic's Cure for Anxiety. In fact, I'm going to incorporate more of your ideas of physical play in my methods of relaxing. And uh, thanks for all the lessons and the the business ideas uh, you shared with the listeners. This is great. Yeah, my pleasure, James. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, James. Well, James, that was an excellent interview. Uh, man, I learned a lot. What was your biggest takeaway? My biggest takeaway, and so, sometimes the small takeaways are the ones that have the most impact in your life. So my biggest takeaway, Aaron, is that the next time you and I get together for a meeting, I want to bring my baseball met and play catch with you. Like, let's let's actually take that advice. Instead of, like, you know, meeting across a table and pulling out our notepads, let's let's play catch or or do something fun like that's that's how we can have our most productive meetings and i'm going to really put this into into practice well look look no further than um you know really the first time that we met and uh you know it was with porter myself you and claudia and we went to spend in new york it's uh susan sarandon's uh ping pong 
kind of like bars slash, you know, just ping pong tables everywhere. And we had the time of our life. And uh, you're right. It's so easy to get away from that and be so serious because life isn't easy. Life is serious, especially as you become an adult. You have bills, you have responsibilities, you have people relying on you. It is good to go out and feel like a kid again. That, that's actually great advice. Yeah. And, and finding, look, finding the opportunity. Like when, when we were kids, we used to have a rock and I would try to kick the rock past you. You would try to kick the rock past me and we would fall, fall around and get dirty. And, and that would be fun. Then, then we wouldn't worry about the, the days ahead or, or, you know, feeding mouths or all the stresses of life. We would just have fun. And I think kind of trying to recapture that in our lives a little bit each day is so incredibly important. Like I can't stress it enough. You know, there's that saying you only live once, which is a little bit trite, but, uh, look, if I can play every day of my life, then that's a life well lived. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, James, let's jump into the Ask Altature segment. And also, you have some exciting news for our listeners. Why don't you go ahead and tell them about uh, the segment? Well, okay, so we're going to do Ask Altature for, for this podcast, for this particular one. But then we're going to splinter it off into its own daily podcast where anybody can ask me anything. And I will pick you know one or two questions a day and answer them on this podcast. And I think what's really important to realize is that the questions are not coming from you know the most successful people. The questions are coming from people who are right in the middle of a life situation, and those are the problems that need solving right now. And that's you know really been the purpose of this podcast is to help people transform and reinvent their lives but i've been primarily talking to people who are already on the other side of that reinvention now everybody i've spoken to has reinvented their life from one career to another and they've talked about being hitting bottom being in the valley and coming back up but uh, you know in these questions i want to hear from people who are still in the valley still hitting bottom and we're gonna we're gonna help them work their way through because look we're all to some extent always working our way through every day of our lives yeah, that's exactly right. So on that note, this one, uh, this piece comes from Frank and Frank uh, writes, I'm just going to kind of take a section out of it. I often read your posts and wonder, would James be writing such personal tell-alls if he was financially strapped? Would you let it all hang out if you were still trying to make it financially and exposing your innermost thoughts uh, would potentially damage your professional viability? Or can you write now only because you're wealthy enough to not care what anyone thinks. And you replied back to him. And I thought it was interesting because you said, look, I was writing for two years when I was broke. And uh, there was one thing that you did to separate yourself. And that was writing with absolute honesty. Talk about that for a second. Sure. So, so obviously I've talked about before in the nineties, I, I made a lot of money and then I was so stupid. I, I just, not stupid. I mean, maybe it happens to a lot of people, but I lost everything, like every dime. I was totally broke. Then it, then I made money again uh, and then lost everything. And then I made money again and lost everything. I, I became phenomenally good at both making money and losing all of it. And the last time I lost all of it, I lost my family. I lost my house. I lost so much. And I was depressed. And I've talked about this in other podcasts. I encourage people to go back and, and listen to some of them. I talk about it in my book, Choose Yourself. Uh, so I won't get into into all of that. But when I started writing my blog, like a really kind of tell-all sort of blog, I was so sick and tired of everything. And I had kind of also was at that time hitting bottom. And this was just a few years ago. And I was once again hitting bottom and I was thinking, oh my God, how come this is happening again? And uh, I did lose all my opportunities and I did lose business contacts and I did lose more friends and whatever family I had left stopped talking to me because I was being so honest, not in a cruel way. I wouldn't, I would never write about anybody else in a, in a mean or hurtful way. It's just that they were literally embarrassed to be known as as related to me and so but what happened was very interesting is that i became a trusted source like people knew that i was always going to be incredibly honest because that's how i was writing and this is at a point when i had nothing going on um so 
But what happened was people started calling me and saying, hey, we have this company. Can we have your advice on this? Or we have this company and this opportunity. Can you introduce us to so-and-so? And I was starting to get more and more opportunities contact me because they knew I was the one person they could trust because I was blogging about, you know, everything that was happening in my life. And so I started creating more and more opportunities and these oppor- opportunities always generate into abundance if treated, you know, with love and care. So I started creating more abundance than ever, than ever before, than all of these other businesses combined that I had ever started before. And I started following my own advice of the daily practice that I talk about in other podcasts and in my book. And really every six months since then, my life has completely changed and for, for the better. And more abundance has been created than ever. And I still have these opportunities. Now, some people will never talk to me again. Some people think I'm completely crazy. Like one CEO of a company contacted me and said, oh, I heard you had a, a nervous breakdown or a heart attack. And I'm like, no, I just started being real with myself. And, and, and everyone else thought I had a nervous breakdown. But look, we, again, we only live once. And this is This is the way I choose to live my life. All right. Great, James. Well, I really look forward to these uh, daily Ask Altitude segments. I want to encourage all the uh, listeners out there to send in their questions to James at StansberryRadio.com. That's James at StansberryRadio.com. And we're going to start tackling these starting next week. Well, James, uh, I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Any parting thoughts for the listeners? Well, I have to say I'm really excited to do this daily podcast. And I'm not just saying this from a marketing point of view. Like, you know, I like these podcasts that are sort of an an hour, hour and a half where I interview incredibly fascinating people. It's like the best experience where I get to talk to my friends and have people listen and 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 so on. But it's going to be really fun to do a daily podcast where I tackle these uh, individual questions and help people who are in in the thick of it. Just like I feel I'm in the thick of it. I'm always in the thick of it. Because if I'm not in the thick of it, it means I'm losing something in my life. And I always like to put myself into the middle of crazy and insane situations. So, so I'm happy to, to share my experiences while people are sharing theirs with me. All right, James, thanks so much. Thanks. Stansberry Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized financial advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's financial situation is unique and Stansberry Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized advice. Stansberry Radio is not licensed to render personalized advice and should be considered simply the public opinions of Stansberry Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific financial securities are not intended to address any listener's particular financial situation. 